kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's Monday night. It's another edition of Auntie Nanny. And with me this evening is the best producer that money can't buy. Um, Very, how are you this evening, Very? I'm good. It's snowing where I am, but it's Scotland, so what are you going to do? (laughs) Um, I'm not, I'm pretty sure... We're probably not going to have a CASA update right away uh, this evening like we normally do. Um, the weather is freaking terrible. And um, it. Let me see if I can dig this up so maybe people will understand this. Okay, I'm just going to read this. This was on CASA's blog today. Some background on CASA calls to action. With so much proposed legislation, now seems like a good time to talk about how CASA handles its calls to action. We are tracking nearly 200 pieces of legislation at the state level, and more are being added to our list each day. Some of the legislation is received via a tracking service we subscribe to, while others are provided by groups that we work cooperatively with, who sometimes have access to draft legislation and amendments before they are introduced. When a bill potentially impacting consumers' interests in regards to tobacco harm reduction issues is identified, we vet the bill, determine how it will affect consumers, formulate our response, and address the likelihood of it advancing. As part of the process, we work cooperatively with others to assess its threat and to discuss strategy. The timing of a CASA call to action is key. First, analyzing our response data, we have determined that participation is overwhelmingly good when we first issue the call to action. After the first day or two of initial release, participation falls way off. When a call to action is updated, requiring new emails slash calls to be made, we see a bump in participation, but still nowhere near the levels when the call to action was first issued. Accordingly, we know how important it is to time the release of a call to action so that it can make the greatest positive impact. So how do we determine the timing? Sometimes we determine that the best focus of our efforts is very early on 
or in an effort to prevent a bad bill from gaining traction or to try to get a not-so-terrible bill amended before it gets too far through the pipeline. Other times, we decide that we should hold off until a bill has been introduced into a committee that will be taking substantive action on it, at which point we can focus our efforts on that committee. In making these determinations, we take into account intelligence offered by others involved more directly in advocacy efforts in the state, but while that intelligence informs our decision, it does not control it. It is so important to remember that CASA does not operate in a vacuum, and we do recognize and value the contribution of others in the advocacy space. And often, part of the reason why we can afford to hold off on issuing a call to action in an effort to maximize our impact is because others are on the ground working behind the scenes as well as publicly. Just because CASA has not issued a call to action for a particular state or bill does not mean that there is no activity or that people in that state shouldn't be engaged, intelligent, engaged in intelligent and polite communications to their lawmakers. Uh, they are always appropriate, whether early before legislation is even threatened or in the midst of the battle over the issue. So, um, like I said, uh, I don't know if we're actually going to have a CASA update tonight, but I guess that was as close to it as we're getting. Um, so it's really busy. <laughs> it's, it's, it's extremely busy, and we have one person doing this, and poor Alex, God love him. He really does feel like he's doing a good thing, and he is, and he's working so hard. I feel so bad for him. Yeah. And he has a full-time job on top of that. So he's, he's kicking butt, I think, over there. Um, there is no Miss Jeannie K this evening. So I figured I would let you know that now. Um, she's, she's house fighting or whatever. <laughs> yeah, she's, um, she's, uh, not having a whole lot of fun right now, but, um, yeah. So you saw Citizen Four this week. What did you think? Or actually last um, week. Well, I, I I kind of already knew everything that was in it anyway. Uh, mm. So yes, but uh, for anyone who hasn't seen it, it is worth a watch. Just to see the extents governments will go to, to get yeah. their way. <laughs> it, it's, it is uh, really interesting watching. If you get a chance to see it, you should go see it. Okay. Because um, yeah, as, as we talked just before the show, yeah, I've... Yeah, his his admiration for GCHQ <laughs> comes GCH. out quite strongly in that film. Well, I, what surprised me was when he gave Ian um, this. The, I, I believe is he Irish? That reporter, yeah. or yeah, when he gave the Irish reporter, he said, "I'm going to give you two things." Uh, I was watching a press conference with them earlier today, the Guardian reporters, and they were saying what Ian was actually given was 6,662 pages on GCHQ. <laughs> I'm going to give you two things. Yeah, okay, not so much, but yeah, GCHQ's pretty bad. Um, oh, yeah, most efficient uh, data collection agency in the world. But yeah. yeah, they've had nearly 100 years of practice, so yeah. Um, I didn't really want to do this first, but I'm looking at it, and it's bothered me since I saw it. Um, I want to talk about Hammond Square in uh -huh. Chicago. <laughs> I know. Everybody's excited to hear about it. Okay. And 
The story is called The Disappeared. Chicago police detained Americans at abuse-laden black site. <sighs> While U.S. military and intelligence interrogation impacted people overseas, Hammond Square, said to house military-style vehicles and even a cage, focuses on American citizens, most often poor, black, and brown. When you go in, Brian Jacob Church told The Guardian, nobody knows what happened to you. The Chicago Police Department operates an off-the-books interrogation compound, rendering Americans unable to be found by family or attorneys while locked inside what the lawyers say is the domestic equivalent of a CIA black site. The facility, a nondescript warehouse on Chicago's west side known as Hammond Square, has long been the scene of secretive work by special police units. Interviews with local attorneys and one protester who spent the better part of a day shackled in Hammond Square describe allegations that deny access to basic constitutional rights. Um, according to those familiar with the facility who spoke out after the investigation into Chicago police abuse include keeping arrestees out of official booking databases, beating by police resulting in head wounds, shackling for prolonged periods, denying attorneys access to the secure facility, holding people without legal counsel for between 12 and 24 hours, including people as young as 15. At least one man was found unresponsive in a Hammond Square interview room and later pronounced dead. Brian Jacob Church, a protester known as one of the NATO Three, was held and questioned at Hanman Square in 2012 following a police raid. Officers restrained Church for the better part of a day, denying him access to an attorney before sending him to a nearby police station to be booked and charged. Hanman Square is definitely an unusual place, Church told the Guardian on Friday. It brings to mind the interrogation facilities they use in the Middle East. The CIA calls them black sites. It's a domestic black site. When you go in, no one knows what happened to you. The secretive warehouse is the latest example of Chicago police practices that echo much criticized detention abuses of U.S. war on terrorism. While those abuses impacted people overseas, Hammond Square said to house military-style vehicles, interrogation cells, and even a cage, trains its focus on Americans. And like a precinct, no one taken to Hammond Square is said to be booked. Witnesses, suspects, or other Chicagoans who end up inside do not appear to have a public searchable record entered into a database indicating where they are, as happens when someone is booked in a precinct. Lawyers and relatives insist there is no way of finding their whereabouts. Those lawyers who have attempted to gain access to Hammond Square are most often turned away, even as their clients remain in custody inside. It's a sort of open secret among attorneys that regularly make police station visits. This place, if you can't find a client in the system, odds, odds are they're there, said Chicago lawyer Julia Barnt... Barnt? Barnt's... Yeah. <laughs> what a horrible name. Yeah. <laughs> um, poor thing. Um, Chicago civil rights attorney Flint Taylor said Hammond Square represented a routinization of a notorious practice in local police work that violates the Fifth and Sixth Amendments of the Constitution. This Hammond Square revelation seems to me to be an institutionalization of a practice that dates back more than 40 years, Taylor said. 
of violating a suspect or witness's rights to a lawyer and not to be physically or otherwise coerced into giving a statement. Uh, much remains hidden about Hammond Square. And the Chicago Police Department did not respond to the Guardian's questions about the facility, but after the Guardian published the story, the department provided a statement insisting without specifics that there is nothing untoward taking place at what is called the sensitive location, home to undercover units. CPD abides by all laws, rules, and guidelines pertaining to any interviews of suspects or witnesses at Hammond Square or any other CPD facility. If lawyers have a client detained at Hammond Square, just like any other facility, they're allowed to speak to and visit them. It also houses CPD's evidence recovered property section where the public is able to claim inventory property, the statement said. Something numerous attorneys and one Hammond Square arrestee have denied. There are always records of anyone who is arrested by CPD, and this is not any different at Hanman Square, it continued. The Chicago police statement did not address how long into an arrest or detention those records are generated or their availability to the public. A department spokesperson did not respond to a detailed request for clarification. When a Guardian reporter arrived at the warehouse on Friday, a man at the gate outside refused any entry and would not answer questions. Quote, this is a secure facility. You're not even supposed to be standing here, said the man who refused to give his name. A former Chicago police superintendent and more recently retired detective, both of whom have been inside Hammond Square in the last few years, in a post-police capacity, said that the police department did not operate out of the warehouse until the late 1990s. But in detailing episodes involving their clients over the past several years, lawyers described mad scrambles that led to the closed doors of Hammond Square, a place most had never heard of previously. The facility was even unknown to Rob Warden, the founder of Northwestern University's Law School Center on Wrongful Convictions, until the Guardian informed him of the allegations of clients who vanish into inherently coercive police custody. They just disappear, said Anthony Hill, a criminal defense attorney, until they show up at a district for charging or are just released back out on the street. Jacob Church learned about Hammond Square the hard way. On May 16, 2012, he and 11 others were taken there after police infiltrated their protest against the NATO summit. Church says officers cuffed him to a bench for an estimated 17 hours, intermittently interrogating him without reading him his Miranda rights to remain silent. It would take another three hours and an unusual lawyer visit through a wire cage before he was finally charged with terrorism-related offenses at the nearby 11th District Station, where he was made to sign papers, fingerprinted, and photographed. In preparation for the NATO protest, Church, who was from Florida, had written a phone number for the National Lawyers Guild on his arm as a precautionary measure. Once taken to Hammond Square, Church asked expressly to call his lawyers and said he was denied. Essentially, I wasn't allowed to make contact with anybody, Church told the Guardian, in contradiction of police guidance on permitting phone calls and legal counsel to arrestees. Church's left wrist was cuffed to a bar behind a bench in a windowless cinder block cell with its ankles cuffed together. He remained in those restraints for about 17 hours. Quote, I had essentially figured, all right, well, they disappear us, and so we're probably never going to see the light of day again, Church said. Though the raid attracted major media attention, a team of attorneys could not find Church through 12 hours of active searching. Sarah 
Kill Somino. Right. Church's lawyer recalled no booking records existed. Only after she and others made a major stink with contacts in the offices of the Corporation Council and Mayor Rob Emanuel did they even learn about Hammond Square. They sent another attorney to the facility where he ultimately gained entry and talked to Church through Florida Ceiling Chain Link Metal Cage. Hours later, police took Church and his two co-defendants to a nearby police station for booking. After serving two and a half years in prison, Church is currently on parole after he and his co-defendants were found not guilty in 2014 of terrorism-related offenses, but guilty of lesser charges of possessing an incendiary device and the misdemeanor of, quote, mob action, unquote. It's almost like they throw a black bag over your head and make you disappear for a day or two. The access that the NATO three attorneys received to Hammond Square was an exception to the rule, even if Jacob Church's experience there was not. The three attorneys interviewed by the Guardian report being personally turned away from Hammond Square between 2009 and 2013 without being allowed to access their clients. Two more lawyers who hadn't been physically denied described it as a place where police withheld information about their clients' whereabouts. Church was the only person who had been detained at the facility who agreed to talk with the Guardian. The lawyers say others fear police retaliation. One man in January 2013 had his name changed in the Chicago Central Bookings database and then taken to Hanman Square without a record of his transfer being kept. According to Eliza... Yeah. Solo week. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> of Chicago's first defense legal aid. The man, the Guardian understands, wishes to remain anonymous. His current attorney declined to confirm the other attorney's account. She found out where he was after he was taken to the hospital with a head injury. He said that the officers caused his head injuries in an interrogation room at Hanman Square. I had been looking for him for six to eight hours at every department. Remember I talked to said they had never heard of him, she said. He sent me a phone picture of his head injuries because I had seen him at a police station right before he was transferred to Hanman Square. Bartim's another Chicago attorney said that in September 2013, she got calls from a mother worried that her 15-year-old son had been picked up by police before dawn. A sympathetic sergeant followed up with the mother to say her son was being questioned at Hanman Square in connection to a shooting and would be released soon. When hours passed, Bartim's traveled to Hanman Square only to be refused entry for nearly an hour. An officer told her, well, you can't just stand here taking notes. This is a secure facility. They're undercover officers, and you're making people very nervous, Bartim's recalled. Told to leave, she said she would return in an hour if the boy was not released. He was home and not charged after 12, maybe 13 hours in custody. On February 2nd, 2013, John Hubbard was taken to Hunman Square. Hubbard never walked out. The Chicago Tribune reported that the 44-year-old was found unresponsive inside an interview room and pronounced dead. After publication, the Cook County Medical Examiner told The Guardian that the cause of death was determined to be heroin intoxication. Hunman Square is hardly concerned exclusively with terrorism, Several special units operate outside of it, including the anti-gang and anti-drug forces. If police want money, guns, drugs, or information on the flow of any of them in Chicago streets, they bring them in there and use it as a place of interrogation off the books, Hill said. Former Chicago detective and current police investigator Bill Dorsch, Dorsch said he had not heard of the police abuses described by Church and his lawyers 
four other suspects who had been taken to Hanman Square. He has been permitted access to the facility to visit one of its main features, an evidence locker for the police department. I just showed my retirement star and passed through, Dorsch said. Transferring detainees through police custody to deny them access to legal counsel would be a, quote, career ender, Dorsch said. To move just for the purpose of hiding them, I can't see that happening, he told The Guardian. Richard Brezek, Chicago's police superintendent from 1980 to 1983, also said he had no firsthand knowledge of abuses at Hammond Square, said it was never justified to deny access to attorneys. Hammond Square should be on the same list as every other facility, where you can call central booking and say, can you tell me if this person is in custody and where at Bresnik's head? If you're going to be doing this, then you have to include Hammond Square on the list of facilities that prisoners are taken into and a record made. It can't be an exempt facility. Indeed, Chicago police guidelines appear to ban the sorts of practices church and the lawyers say occur at Hanman Square. A directive titled Processing Persons Under Department Control instructs that investigation or interrogation of arrestee will not delay the booking process, and arrestees must be allowed a reasonable number of telephone calls to an attorney swiftly after their arrival in the first place of custody. Another directive Arrestee, um, arrestee and in-custody communications, says police supervisors must allow visitation by attorneys. Attorney Scott Finger said that the Chicago police tightened their latter directive in 2012 after quiet complaints from lawyers about their lack of access to Hanman Square. Without those charges, those changes, church's attorneys might not have gained entry at all. But that tightening about a week before Church's arrest did not prevent Church's prolonged detaination without a lawyer, nor the later cases where lawyers were unable to enter. The combination of holding clients for long periods while concealing their whereabouts and denying access to a lawyer struck legal experts as a throwback to the worst excesses of Chicago police abuse with a post-9-11 feel to it. On a smaller scale... Hammond Square is analogous to the CIA's black sites, said Andrea Lyon, a former Chicago public defender and current dean of Valparaiso University Law School. When she practiced law in Chicago in the 80s and 90s, she said police used the term shadow site to refer to the the quasi-disappearances now in place at Hammond Square. I can't read too much more of this. Well, as they say, yeah, it's, it appears the Chicago police are uh, going backwards. <laughs> well, some of the other investigations that, and and the Guardian once again has done really great work, which is what they do. Um, they they did an amazing amount of work, and they found a lot of the people who run the Hanman Square site were people that um, came back from Iraq. So you have that that weird mixing of military and police, which should always, at least in my mind, remain separate. And you have that happening. And it kind of morphs into something like that. Although although I noticed one of the detainees must have had a, a, a trainee attend him. Head injury? Really? You never do the head. You can't answer questions if you knock if you knock them out. Yeah, yeah I know. Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, 
I'm gonna we're bring we'll bring Alex on at eight thirty. Okay. Is that okay? Yeah. yeah it's fine. Okay. Um. Um. Not eight thirty. Um. Six thirty. Duh. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. We'll bring Alex on I know at eight thirty. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know, but I need to. But eight thirty somewhere in mid Atlantic. That, that would yeah. be. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, we won't. No worries. I'm I'm sure at that point we'll be like off the air. <laughs> Come on, on, Alex. No problem. Um, but yeah, the other point I wanted to make was um, with something like that making headlines. Um, people really ought to be paying more attention to the Patriot Act and looking exactly at what it says because the sort of thing that happens at Hanman Square is the sort of thing that's expressly allowed by something like the Patriot Act. Only, you know, a lot of the people in Hanman Square got to go to jail. And what's actually allowed by the Patriot Act and the NDAA, you won't even be allowed that. You will just disappear and no one will know what happened to you. So it's just something to think about. Um, the, the the just to insert here, I yeah. doubt they're the only police force doing this. Oh hell no, no, um, they're just the first one. To I know, get I know, the UK police force has been caught doing it as well. So, yeah, no doubt other cities in the US. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can certainly bet places like Detroit certainly have black sites. Oh, of course. I mean, I I think black sites are. Black sites are are now a new reality where you can just be whisked away only not to a place where you have a fun vacation. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, well, it was said in the article, police used to do that anyway. It it went away for 60 or Mm -hmm. 70 years and now it's coming back. Yay. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. (laughs) Well, you know... What I'm saying is is now with the Patriot Act, there's actually some sort of legal precedent for this. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, I think it's highly illegal because all of the things that happened in Hanman Square violate your Fifth and Sixth Amendment. What happens with the NDAA violates your Second, Third, Fourth, Fifth. Well, hell, every amendment. Uh, <laughs> so, um the Bill of Rights means nothing when that can happen. Oh, and yeah. that's a problem. So I have to call them African American sites. That's not happening. <laughs> yeah, you Sorry. Don't want to get in trouble like uh, <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, but I can actually say the word penguin, so we're good there. Well, he, he can as well in, <laughs> in many different ways. <laughs> <laughs> that's absolutely true. Okay. Um,. So, yeah, um, I think Alex is probably ready to come on. Yep, I'll just dial okay. in now. Okay. All right, Alex, brace yourself. And he Hello. should be on. Hi, Alex, how are you? Good, how's it going? Um, Better for me than for you. 200 pieces of legislation. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, I definitely have the easy gig looking at all the science stuff. I I haven't actually 
Oh man, I just I, I just got home and looked at my emails and I'm looking at a huge handful of local stuff. <laughs> man, well, it just didn't stop. Well, I mean, local stuff is really more in I'm not trying to dump this in anybody's lap, but local stuff is more what the militia is doing, isn't it? Small local bills. Um, yeah, that was sort of the plan was uh-huh. to pass it off to them so that we could get some relief. Um, but you know, I, I talked with Joe this weekend and, and, and Julie this weekend, um, and sort of talked about ways that we can improve the way that we're putting those out. Um, uh-huh. and I would really like to work on a system, uh, to kind of streamline the process. Okay. Um, and, uh, it's not so much that we CASA are taking them back. It's that I think that all of the advocacy groups really need to kind of work out an efficient way to put these out. Um, right. So, you know, involving, involving, um, I think, uh, not, 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 not noir. Right. Um, we know, we also know him as Patrick. Patrick. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, he's sort of the, he's, he's me. Yeah. He's you for the militia. <laughs> Um, and which is, is pretty accurate because he also has a full-time job and is, you know, yeah. up to his eyeballs and, and, and work that pays him, um, other than yeah. vaping. So, yeah. um, so yeah, That's... it really, it really, really involves just kind of, you know, organizing mm-hmm. a group of people and, and, and managing, we need yeah. some, we need some more, we need some worker bees. We need um, people. <laughs> yeah. And and don't get me wrong, I've got to tell you, you guys are doing a tremendous job keeping an eye on everything, and, and thank you so much. Um, I read the CASA blog post that went up today about how we vet legislation um, at the top of the hour, because I wasn't sure when you were going to make it home. I know the weather has been freaking terrible for you. It's actually good. The, the bad weather stopped this morning, apparently, so I, I my flight was fine, and I think... Right. Everybody kind of got screwed yesterday, but um, <laughs> I'm in good shape today. Yeah. I, I really feel bad that I did not get to see you this weekend, you and Julie. That, that it was it was a good time. Fun. You should yeah. have been there last night. I'm not going to go into details, but <laughs> you should have been there last night. It was totally worth it. Well, like I said, 14 hours of work the day before does not make a nice drive into Tampa for Jan. Yeah. So sorry about that. Um, so I, I could say anything new on the horizon, but you've got uh, 200 gigantic pieces of legislation right in front of you. Yeah, I actually haven't seen all 200. I, I have a list <laughs> myself, which is 110. Right. Greg apparently has a list that's 160. Um, I'm not exactly sure when it became 200. I, I'm not really questioning that number. Um, it would surprise me if we see well over that this year. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, February just ended. The yeah. legislative sessions have been going for a little over a month and a half. Yeah. Um, so yeah, things are, things are coming up. Uh, it looks like Illinois should probably be seeing something this week. Yeah. Um, uh, what's it indoor use and um, I think they're looking at a tax I might be speaking too soon everybody's looking at taxes yeah they are um, and um, Florida 
I'm not exactly sure when. I wouldn't be surprised to see something this week out of Florida. Um, they've got that weird treating uh, devices like drug paraphernalia. Yeah, they've uh, been doing that since they caught a high school kid vaping. Or that's their excuse, but go ahead. They, they, <laughs> caught, a, they, they caught him vaping the pot or... Uh, just vaping and, and vaping. you know, they don't know, we don't know what's in it, you know. Yeah, I'm sure it was bubblegum flavored. And, yes, um, attractive whatever. children, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and that's uh, from, you know, what I heard this weekend was that was the sponsor, the, or the, the author or main sponsor of the bill was saying that, well, we got to protect the children somehow. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, you don't have to push all these products on the black market to do that. Um you know, honestly, how many kids have access to the black market? Probably you not as many as adults do, but go ahead. It, it, I mean, the joke used to be that if you wanted drugs or guns, you just go to the local high school. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's, I don't think that was hyperbole in a lot of places. So, you know. Well, I mean, now you just kind of go to the dark web and you kind of pay with Bitcoin and you get what you want. Um, So... Unless you have a high school kid who is a genius and a hacker and knows his way around the dark web, it's probably not as easy as it used to be. I'm just throwing that out there. Of course, it probably is just as easy as it used to be. I'm assuming high school kids are getting their stuff from eBay. And if the FDA and these little podunks, towns and cities wanted to do something really fucking helpful to us, they would make it so that all e-cig sales on eBay either make them freaking illegal or make you have to age verify on eBay before you can buy them. That would be helpful. That would be the most helpful thing they could do, really. I guess enforcing enforcing existing laws would also Uh, go a long way to to uh, helping. Well... Uh, (laughs) In a lot of places, probably. Yeah. What can I say? <laughs> so, so, um, yeah. So, so we had it. We had a good weekend. Good. Um, <laughs> um, just a, a friendly shout out to uh, Kevin Skipper and the vaping convention circuit. Uh, they do a good job of putting advocacy in the spotlight. Um, we had the industry advocacy summit. That's kind of the dinner that they do the night before, Mm -hmm. uh, the general public uh, event. Um, and that was, that was very interesting. I am looking forward to the video of that coming out. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm sure we'll share that as well. Um, I learned a lot about lobbyists, uh, this weekend, Mm -hmm. um, their, their value and their, uh, not value. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, they are a necessary tool, but um, yeah, we uh, it, it, I just I don't want to get myself in trouble or anything, but uh, I, I will I'm, say I'm that the, I'm the political one here. Whatever you were going to say, just just type it and I'll say it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm um, probably God. No, it, it was just very interesting because we've seen this a couple of times where there are like state groups mm-hmm. that have employed a lobbyist. And uh, obviously it's an issue that we're going to issue a call to action for for our members in that state. 
and we'll get a communication from somebody at the state level saying, um, you know, it's time to turn off the campaign or, um, you know, dial it back or something like that. Right. And, um, you know, my gut reaction to something like that is no, uh, mm-hmm. because I, I, you know, I'll, I will stop encouraging people to engage with lawmakers on this issue when I feel that the issue is resolved. And right. I'm, I'm going to feel that the issue is resolved once, you know, roll call has been taken, once, once, once I've seen the language of the bill. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, until then, I, I feel that, you know, that citizens sh- should by all means be encouraged to contact their lawmakers. Absolutely. Um, so I, I'm not exactly sure what purpose they think it serves. Um, I understand that there's some need for consistency of message, um, but uh, for the most part, it's it's kind of it's this weird thing where the lobbyist feels like they need to quarterback the whole situation, and um, that somehow they're they're going to be able to I don't know manage us. Um, <laughs> you know we're we're a completely separate group. Obviously, we don't want to obstruct or get in anybody's way and right. you know make things difficult for people but um you know it's it's not we're not just sort of a casual group here we're not we're not doing this just for fun like we, you know there's a purpose for us to you know encourage people to send emails and make phone calls and, and yeah. it's you know we want we want these things done correctly right. um so uh yeah it's 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 a weird space where i, I just you know i kind of got that sense where in, in in some instances, uh, you know, the lobbyists are sort of justifying their uh, their paycheck, um, and uh, you know, I, I don't mean that in, in to uh, belittle the work that they do at all. It, it's absolutely necessary. They have valuable relationships, valuable experience that you know we can all benefit from. Absolutely, but you know, I just it's just, just a weird feeling, you know, when somebody's trying to quarterback your campaign that doesn't really, isn't really a member of your, your organization, you know? So, oh, uh, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know all about that. Um, I, know. I, uh, I, I find it, uh, I find it a very uncomfortable situation to be in because yeah. you have the grassroots and then you have the, the, um, more professional, um, well-paid people that speak the politicians language, but I don't think we should ever stop encouraging people or asking people to, to open a dialogue with their legislators. Uh, You elected them. You know, they need to hear from you always, always. Uh, And um, being encouraged to put a stop or a hold on something is, is, um, one of the harder new realities, I guess you'd call it, right. that that I've I've seen happen in this advocacy space, and I'm not a fan of it. I'll put it that way. Yeah. And I don't think I got anybody in trouble for that statement either. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, um, people should always be encouraged to speak to their legislators and I'm glad you got to find out about what the value of a lobbyist is because I mean, they do have an inherent value. I mean, they have an ability to speak directly to yeah, the lawmakers, which is, is something we have a 
hard time doing ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a lot about, you know, again, I, you know, I'm, I am relatively new to this compared to a lot of other people that have been doing this for a while. And, um, (laughs) you know, it, it, it is, it's an ongoing exposure to, to what, you know, the various people are doing here and, and all the roles that different people play. And, um, yeah, it's, you know, they, they have relationships that, that we're, we're not going to be able to develop in time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, you know, um, uh, I lost my train of thought there. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're not privy to a lot of things that, that happened there. So, I think when someone says, you know, essentially call off your dogs, um, which I'm not comparing our our members to dogs by any stretch of the imagination. But when when someone makes a statement like that, it's it's very hard to understand exactly what came before that. You know, yeah, for me, we anyway. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't sit in there in that meeting. I have. You know, as an organization, we don't have any assurances that things are going to be uh, amended favorably. And it's, uh, you know, I think it's only fair that we, you know, get some sort of, you know, actual feedback before we start adjusting things. And, you know, to be honest, uh, you know, we have played ball, you know, we we don't we don't want to we don't want to ruffle any feathers if we don't have to. So it's, you know, we're not, we're not in this to make trouble for, for people that are on our side, you know? Oh, I know. Um, so yeah, Illinois and Florida that we know of so far. Oh, yay. Illinois, Uh, Florida. I I look, I'm looking at a a subject line of an email that says Oregon. Um, (laughs) um, I I haven't even looked. God, uh, local alerts from more places than just California. Um, so we got uh, Illinois, Maryland, Minnesota, Missouri, Connecticut, four in California. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I really need to break in this new idea and see. I, <laughs> see I if haven't I can get something going. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I know I work full time too, but you know. Um, I have days off and stuff, so I, I am here if, if you need help. Cool. I'm going to put I, something together and, and everybody's just going to be on an email chain and okay. see, see what happens. Okay. I, I am here. I, um, I don't like, I feel very uncomfortable that, um, one member of the team gets stuck kind of trying to swim upstream. I don't like that. Um, so, um, I would never want you to do something I was unwilling to do myself, although I'm not a great writer. So, but whatever you need, I'm here. Cool. I'll work something out. Okay. Just let me know. Okay. Um, I guess I probably should have said this at the beginning, but (laughs) that was the weekly Casa update for the week of 3 2 2015. <laughs> <laughs> um, and thank you for coming on, Alex. Um, I appreciate Thanks. it. Thanks for having me on. Um, enjoy the. It was 80 some degrees when I left Florida. It's 37 here. 
So um, yeah, enjoy no, it's, it's, enjoy that. <laughs> it's actually really it's really nice here. It, it's yeah. surprisingly really nice. I mean, even for normally when we get rain in the winter, it's it's horrible. But no, it, it's actually pretty nice right now. So hopefully uh, your snow melts and your weather warms up rather quickly. It's not going to. But I know. <laughs> well, thank you for everything you do. Yeah. Thanks. Have a good, have a good night. You too. Bye. See ya. Bye. Um, so yeah, we broke with tradition a little bit, which we have been all night and had the cassette date a little later, which is fine. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Hi, Anonymous Dinosaur. I see you. Uh, <laughs> AR-15 executive action. Through executive action, Obama has banned ammo for the top-selling AR-15 style semi-automatic, labeling them cop killers. In the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, they only need a few more initials before they can sound completely insane as as a government agency. We'll put the ban on 5.56 millimeter ammo on a fast track, which is already driving up the price and demand. Gun stores are now reporting an increase in price of 30% and an increase in demand of 1,000%. Wednesday night, Representative Bob Goodlatte. I like this guy's name. I can I can read it and pronounce it, and I don't have any problems. <laughs> the Republican chairman of the House Judiciary Committee stepped in with a critical letter to the Bureau demanding it explain the surprise and abrupt bullet ban. The letter is shown below. Um, the Obama administration was unable to ban Americans' most popular sporting rifle through the legislative process, so now it's trying to ban commonly owned and used ammunition through regulation, said Chris W. Cox, executive director of the NRA ILA, the group's policy and lobby shop. The NRA and tens of millions of supporters across the country will fight to stop President Obama's latest attack on our Second Amendment freedoms. At issue is the so-called armor-piercing ammunition, an exemption for those bullets mostly used for sport by AR-15 owners and the recent popularity of pistol-style ARs that use the ammo. That's really a misnomer. I mean, it's, it's a shorter-barreled, it's not really pistol-style. It's more of a shorter-barreled gun. It's, it's not really, yeah. there's a difference. It's not really a pistol. But anyway, that's how they've chosen to classify it. Uh, the inexpensive 5.56 M855 ammo, commonly called light green tips, have been exempt for years as have higher caliber ammunition that also easily pierces the type of soft armor worn by police because it's mostly used by target shooters, not criminals. The agency propo proposes to reclassify it as armor-piercing and not exempt. Now, here's what kills me. It wasn't three years ago this same sort of ammunition was forced on people who used ARs by people who um, objected to the lead course in Either. other ammo. So um, there you go. It's, it's all politics. You can't make anybody happy. 
Um, but now the B A T F E, I'm telling you, it, it only needs an A and a C, and they can be the bat face agency. Says that since the bullets can be used in a semi automatic handgun, they pose a threat to police and must be banned from production, sale, and use. But as Good Latte, my favorite name, noted, the agency offered no proof federal agencies will still be allowed to buy the ammo. This round is among the most commonly used in the most popular rifle design in America, the AR 15. Millions upon millions of M855 rounds have been sold and used in the U.S. Yet the ATF has not even alleged, much less offered evidence, that even one such round has ever been fired from a handgun at a police officer, said the letter. Even some police don't buy the administrator's claim. Criminals aren't going to go out and buy a $1,000 AR pistol, Brent Ball, owner of 417 Guns, said in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, He's also a 17-year veteran police officer. As a police officer, I'm not worried about AR pistols because you can see them. It's the small gun in a guy's hand you can't see that kills you. Many see the bullet ban as an assault on the AR-15 and Obama's backdoor bid to end produ- their production and sale. We are concerned, said Justin Anderson with Hyatt Gun Shop in Charlotte, North Carolina, one of the nation's top sellers of AR-15 style rifles. Frankly, we were always concerned when the government used backdoor methods to impose quasi-gun control. Groups like the National Shooting Sports Foundation suggest that the BATFE's new rule, other calibers like popular deer hunting 308 bullets could be banned because they are also used in air platforms, some of which can be turned into pistol-style guns. Quote, this will have a detrimental effect on hunting nationwide, said the group. I mean, that's what an AR is for. It's just accurate. It's just more accurate than yeah. hunting with a shotgun. Well, as, as the uh, police veteran said there, yeah, police are more concerned about the guns they don't notice, the little small concealable ones. And shit, there's one been around for years, uh, the COP 357. That's mm-hmm. a little four-barrel uh, single shot. But you can get three fifty seven Magnum nickel point <laughs> rounds for it. That's going to punch a hole through a car, let alone body armor. <laughs> yeah, it is. But you know, and it fits in um, the palm of your hand. I mean, and I'm sure it's got a hell of a lot of kick. Oh shit! Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, probably not the most practical weapon, but one of the smallest, and oh, yeah. you know, one it's of the, the development most... of a Derringer. So yeah, it's yeah, tiny. Exactly, and you know. A very deadly, deadly pistol if used correctly. So, um, but everything is. And there's this insane thinking that if you ban guns, no one will have guns. I mean, Nancy Pelosi, (laughs) that, no, I know, Nancy Pelosi, that fucking bitch, actually said if, if you ban all handguns, then eventually what will happen, if you ban all guns, all handguns, all guns, eventually what will happen is the bad guys will see that no one has a gun and they will turn around and they will lay down their arms and walk away. I'm like, wow. I don't know what world she lives in, but damn, it must be nice there. As someone who lives in a culture that generally doesn't have guns, uh, we got guns. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Roll moat, uh, (laughs) quite famously the other year, who killed some police... Um, 
he not only had handguns and assault rifles, he had grenades. <laughs> and that's in the UK. <laughs> mm. I mean, that's exactly it. You can say whatever is illegal that you want to make illegal. You can try to force things onto the black market. But here's the thing. People are pretty much going to do what they want to do. Um, whether it's legal or illegal, is it morally correct? Are they just in doing it? And and mostly that's how people make their decisions. It has very little basis in legality. And it would be nice if lawmakers would open their freaking eyes to that. And uh, another thing I would like to add, I am so sick of laws being passed by executive order. Yeah. What the hell ever happened to the stupid little schoolhouse rock? I'm just a bill thing. I want to be a law someday. Don't we pass laws that way anymore? I mean... Apparently not, because it ha- it's happened no. to a certain extent in the UK as well. Uh, Ian Duncan Smith, our lovely Department for Work and Pension Secretary, managed mm-hmm. to uh, fiddle about with some laws so that things he'd said in the past... Uh, then actually became legal rather than illegal. Uh, but he got in a lot of trouble for it. He still didn't get sacked or anything, of course. But, yeah. but the law lords over here went, no, you can't do that. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's just frustrating because um, the only people who are supposed to really be able to pass laws are Congress. And yet if you look at the laws and the regulations that are passed onto the American public every fucking day, you'll find a disproportionate amount of them are set down by regulatory agencies put in place that actually, technically, if you are a constitutional lawyer or interested in constitutional law, you would get that all of those guidelines and regulations are, are technically illegal since Congress didn't pass them. Yeah. So, you know, we, we have a problem. You know, we've got, I, I don't know, I, I guess it's kind of like the old free men on the land thing. Acts are not laws. Yeah. Most of these are not really laws. They're acts. So technically they're legal. I don't know. Well, as, as I say, the way the way in the UK they try to get around the having to put stuff in front of Parliament to be passed is they take an old law and modify it. <laughs> We're just making these changes, uh, but yeah, they they usually end up getting caught out and it gets binned quite quickly because yeah. once you know attention's brought to it, yeah. <laughs> I know. It, it's but that, just, that's it's, what they try and do. I mean, the the ban on smoking in cars in England, uh, that was brought in that way. Yeah. Instead of well, being about health, they snuck it into a child protection law. You know, here's the thing. There's a lot more of us than there are of them. Just keep that in the back of your mind the next time some stupid law gets passed. Okay? Uh, that's all. Yeah. Um, also, I, I would encourage people to um, contact the BATFE and tell them what you think. 
about this. I, I encouraged you last week and then, you know, bang, surprise executive order. So, um, yeah. Well, like I say, the, 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 it, it, it's a bad thing to say, but the next guy who goes on the killing spree needs to use high caliber ammo. <laughs> you know, we don't even need another. We don't need another guy going on a killing spree. Um, how about we just enforce the laws we already have on the books? Those well, seem yeah, to work, could work fine too, for years and years and years. Governments never think about actually enforcing what already exists, though. Yeah, they it's just like, can't. We can write a new one. I'll go away. <laughs> we need to act like we're doing something. Yeah. <laughs> we're doing something. Uh, yeah, so what's nice is knowing that that's pretty much worldwide. Yeah. How that happens. Um, we talked about Amman Square. Um, we talked about the AR-15 ammo ban. Um, uh, there's a lot of stuff in here about GCHQ. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of stuff, and it's mostly about the, the SIM stealing but i think we'll talk about that later um oh yeah they finally got caught doing that yeah yeah they did finally um what i would like to know before i even start reading this story is how come google and industry got to see the depending on how you read it 317 or 332 page plan but no one who's a member of the public no one who's we the people can see it yeah. Tom Wheeler tweaks net neutrality plan after Google push. FCC chairman Tom Wheeler has made some last minute revisions to his net neutrality plan after Google and public interest groups pressed for the changes, according to sources at the commission. Google, Free Press, and New Americans Open Technology Institute last week asked the commission to revise language that they said could unintentionally allow internet service providers to charge websites for sending content to consumers. Such a scenario could open the door to an avalanche of new fees for web companies and threaten their business models, which their business models are all pretty much threatened now that the Internet is a public utility. Um, Google executives on February 19th called aides to Wheeler and staffers for the FCC's two other Democratic commissioners, Migran Claiborne and Jessica wow, Rosenworcel. Rosen Warsel. Wow. To make their case, according to company disclosures, Claiborne has been the most vocal proponent of the revisions inside the commission, the sources said. The exact scope of the language changes, which came to light a day before the FCC is scheduled to vote on the rules, wasn't immediately clear. They do not appear to alter the um, main thrust of Wheeler's proposed order which would regulate broadband like a public utility to ensure Internet providers treat all web traffic equally. The commission's Democratic majority is expected to approve the order over objections of Republicans who say the rules are heavy-handed and will harm investment. Last-minute revisions, however, demonstrate the growing influence of Google, which has become a major lobbying presence in Washington. Advocacy groups like Free Press have also been active in the net neutrality debate, pushing the FCC chairman towards the tough rules that he ultimately adopted. The offices of Wheeler, Claiborne, and Rosen Warsel declined to comment, and a Google spokeswoman said the company has no knowledge of changes made by the commission. 
Much of the late stage negotiations at the FCC is among the three Democrats. Wheeler needs Claiborne and Rosen Warsel <laughs> to support his net neutrality plan because of the FCC's two Republicans opposing it. GOP chairman. Ajit Pai. Ajit Pai. <laughs> confirmed in a tweet Wednesday that he plans to vote against the rules. Pai's message indicated Wheeler's net neutrality plan is now 317 pages instead of his earlier count of 332 pages. Commissioner Michael O'Reilly hasn't tipped his hand on the vote, but has consistently criticized the proposal. While Google is the biggest corporate name that pushed for revision, other smaller tech companies and the trade group Internet Freedom Business Alliance have also raised questions about the language in question. That was as clear as mud. Yeah. Um, I would just like to know why we haven't seen it. That well, because been... you're not an incredibly important, hugely rich international company like Google. Right, but all of those rules affect me. And yeah. when you operate in the shadows, that means something bad is afoot. Yes. And... But there's I, no well, there's no way Google was going to allow a lot of the proposals and net neutrality, uh, well, curtailing net neutrality to go through because it'd screw up their business. Well, yeah, <laughs> they need free I mean, communication of information for well, a lot of their systems to work. So right, and and that's great for them. Yeah. But I think something most people didn't think about, and the more they hold back on this, the more I think about it. You have a gigantic failure of what is known as the fourth estate in this country. Mm -hmm. And their job was to warn you when the government was corrupt or when shady stuff was happening. I don't see news media doing that on a daily basis. I don't see them doing much of it at all. I think most of their reporting is shitty and shoddy and biased at best. Um, and that's, that's you, being complimentary. Yeah. I'm being kind here. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's that's just here in America. Um, BBC does some good work. RT America does some good work. Um, there are individual journalists who on their own do some good work through blogging or whatever. Um, the Intercept's a great site. Uh, whether you agree with the politics behind the people who write for The Intercept or not, uh, the journalism is it's good. And it's rare to find good journalism, so uh, that's something to support. So yeah, RT is is quite hilarious because yeah, yeah, it's mostly American news, but none of their news offices are actually in the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, spread all over the world. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, but here's the thing I've been thinking about: if the fourth estate is this massive failure, right? Because they're Captured by the CIA, NSA, government. Well, the main problem more is a lot of them, so much of the media is captured by Murdoch these days. <laughs> well, true. But I'm saying if all of these are, are spreading the government line across networks from even things you would consider as diverse as Fox and CBS, if, if those are indeed diverse, but I mean, they don't. They don't really seem to differ on the lines they push. Well, no, because uh, their executives like going to dinner together and, you know, all yeah, that kind of stuff. Exactly, because they're friends. But yeah. um, <laughs> uh, if that's your choices, then 
the fourth estate is essentially dead. And you're left with what rises out of the ashes, which becomes the fifth estate. The fifth estate is only possible because of the internet. And if a lot of the rules that apply to reporting on TV, on radio, are applied to what happens on the internet, I think you can count the fifth estate as being dead, too. Yeah. I find that an uncomfortable position to be in. Well, yeah, in the UK, the we knew the fourth estate was completely broken, but what really hit it home was the nice, uh, well, they tried to cover it up, but the, the lovely, <laughs> friendly, happy, first-name basis uh, friendliness between David Cameron, our lovely Prime Minister, <sighs> and the Murdoch press. You know... Inviting them round for dinner... Murdoch's, you know, a godfather for one of the kids, etc., etc. You're like, yeah, politics and the media are just too intertwined now. Well, I mean, and they are. And I can remember, and I I think I've talked about this before in the past, and and I'll probably keep bringing it up because hopefully different and new people are hearing this and it's not the same people hearing the same old story every time we talk about the media. Um, But I can remember... About five years ago, six years ago, there was actually a really big dinner for all of these quote unquote journalists and the White House was holding it. And they were talking about how great it was because Entertainment Tonight was actually outside, you know, interviewing all these famous journalists like Dan Rather and the head of CBS and NBC and Fox. They were all going into this big, really beautiful, glittering banquet. And they were being interviewed and people were saying how excited they were that the government and journalists had finally crossed this bridge together and developed a partnership. That should fucking scare you to death. Yes. Yes, the, the, the press are not supposed to be all friendly exactly. and nice with politicians. Yeah. Exactly. They're supposed There's... to be keeping an eye on them. Exactly. That is their job. So, yeah. I don't know. It, the idea, I love the idea of a fifth estate. I love the idea of something rising from the ashes like a phoenix. I don't like the idea that the FCC could kill it. Yeah. And that is my objection to net neutrality, and it's the only one I've had, and it's the only one I still have. Yeah. Well, as I say, it's, it's not the greatest situation, obviously, but yeah. The government can't afford to piss off Google, so there will still be free internet of sorts. Because, um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> go to any page just about on the internet and there will mm-hmm. be Google Analytics. Well, um, you know what's, what's so, really... Yeah, they don't want a closed-down internet. No, what's really weird, though... Um... I know I've been looking at a lot of the impending legislation and I don't know when I say I've been looking at a lot of it, I nowhere near as much as Alex has nowhere near much as as much as Greg has and nowhere near as much as Julie has. Okay. Mm -hmm. I just look at everything through a different source. So I go in through a different source than anybody else. And I find some other odd stuff and a lot of the government 
websites, a lot of their documents are actually being stored on Google. Yep. So I don't know exactly when that started, but I, I think there maybe should be a separation between the government and Google. But yeah. Well, Google will, of course, claim that all the data <laughs> is encrypted on cloud servers, etc., etc., which to a certain extent is true. But yeah, as you say, I mean, government should be using their own storage, not yeah. a company's storage. Well, Unless I mean, there are some very public documents that have been signed uh, yeah. telling the public uh, about this. Well, I mean, yeah, here's my issue. Uh, we've spent trillions of dollars building infrastructure in the Nevada desert to hold terabytes of information. Hundreds and hundreds well, of terabytes. Okay, way beyond terabytes now. Yeah. Well, yeah, but you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. The last, the last source I can date, just about three, four years ago, talked about how many billions of terabytes it could process. Okay, so yeah. now we're at billions of terabytes, and uh, I haven't really seen much on that since. Uh, I'm pretty sure the NSA is clamping down on their documents. Just saying. And I'm not about to go hunting for this stuff anymore. But we've got servers that can handle this stuff. Why aren't we using them? Yeah. Well, anyway. to be honest, we've had servers that can handle that sort of data mm -hmm. flow for at least the last decade. Mm -hmm. uh, the speed of computer systems now is enormous. So... <laughs> I don't know if had anybody seen the 60-minute special on DARPA. Ah, <laughs> oh, fun organization. Yeah. Oh, 60 Minutes and DARPA. Um, and 60 Minutes, Leslie Stahl just goes into these DARPA labs and, and just paints this lovely rosy picture of DARPA and what it can do <laughs> and it can protect us. Okay. It's not Wanna just, talk yeah, it's not just crazy scientists. Honest, Gav. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk about Memex. And I want to talk about why Memex is kind of disturbing. Because they showed a little bit of film on 60 Minutes in, in real time of what Memex can do to the dark web. Yes. And that is not at all cool. Um. So... Okay, here's where we talk about Memex. And this is from Scientific American. In November 2012, a 28-year-old woman plunged 15 meters from a bedroom window to the pavement in New York City, a devastating fall that left her body broken but alive. The act was an act of both desperation and hope. The woman had climbed out of her sixth-floor window toescape. A group of men who had been sexually abusing her and to escape a group of men who had been sexually abusing her and holding her captive for two days. Four months ago, the New York County District Attorney's Office sent Benjamin Gaston, one of the men responsible for the woman's ordeal, to prison for 50 years to life, a key weapon in the prosecutor's arsenal, according to the NYPD and NYDA's office. Uh, an experimental set of Internet search tools the U.S. Department of Defense is developing to help catch and lock up human traffickers. Okay, that sounds good to me. That's what you want. 
Although the Defense Department and the prosecutor's office had not publicly acknowledged using the new tools, they confirmed to Scientific American that the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, its MEMEX program, provided advanced Internet search capabilities that helped secure the conviction. DARPA is creating MEMEX to scour the Internet in search of information about human trafficking, in particular advertisements used to lure victims into servitude and to promote their sexual exploitation. Much of this information is publicly available, but it exists in the 90% of the so-called deep web that Google, Yahoo, and other popular search engines do not index. That leaves untouched a multitude of information that may not be valuable to the average web surfer, but could provide crucial information to investigators. Google would not confirm that it indexes no more than 10% of the Internet, a statistic that has been widely reported, but a spokesperson pointed out that the company's focus is on whether its search results are relevant and useful in answering users' queries, not whether it is indexed 100% of the data on the Internet. Much of this deep web information is unstructured, data gathered from sensors and other devices that may not reside in a database that can be scanned or quote-unquote crawled by other search engines, also called spiders. Other deep web data comes from temporary pages, such as advertisements for legal, sexual, and similarly illicit services that are removed before search engines can crawl them. Some areas of the deep web are accessible using only special software, such as the Tor's Onion Router, which allows people to secretly share information anonymously anonymously via peer-to-peer connections rather than going through a centralized computer server. DARPA is working with 17 different teams of researchers from both companies and universities to craft internet search tools as part of the MIMEX program that give government, military, and business new ways to analyze, organize, and interact with the data pulled from this larger pool of sources. DARPA has said very little about MIMEX and it's used by law enforcement and prosecutors to investigate suspected criminals. According to published papers, including one from Carnegie Mellon University, the MYDA's office is one of several law enforcement agencies that have used early versions of the MEMEC software over the past year to find and prosecute human traffickers who coerce or abduct people, typically women and children, for the purposes of exploitation, sexual and otherwise. MEMEX, a combination of the words memory and index, first coined in a 1945 article for The Atlantic, currently includes eight... Come on. Come on. Scroll up. God damn it. Currently includes eight... Lovely. I love when this happens. Here we go. Currently includes... Yeah. This is fantastic. Uh, Currently includes eight... open-source, browser-based search analysis and data visualization programs, as well as back-end server software that perform complex computations and data analysis. Such capabilities could become a crucial component in the fighting of human trafficking, a crime with low conviction rates, primarily because of the strategies that traffickers use to disguise their victims' identities. The United Nations Office on Drugs and Crimes estimates that there are about 2.5 million human trafficking victims worldwide at any given time. 
yet putting the criminals who press them into servitude behind bars is difficult. In its 2014 study on human trafficking, the UN agency found that 40% of countries surveyed reported less than 10 convictions per year between 2010 and 2012. About 15% of the 128 countries covered in the report did not report any convictions. So, I mean, it sounds great, doesn't it? Very. Well, it's, <laughs> it, yeah, again, it's not exactly new. Um, search bots um, have been around an awful long time. Right. In fact, they were the first type of search engine mm-hmm. around long before Google and Yahoo and all the rest existed. Right. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, they've got better. Uh, you get smart bots now that um, stick themselves all over the place. Oh, and also, <laughs> the the big joke there is them saying that Google doesn't look at... <laughs> Everything extra data. That's a load of rubbish as well. Well, Uh, of course they do. It does, but because that's their business is information. They're not going to overlook a whole data source. No, I mean don't get me wrong. Public Google does a good job in helping you to find information, but um, private Google does versions of the Google search engine. Right, and what private Google. What private Google does and what Google slash DARPA, which they work together, do is completely different than what you think they do. The problem with uh, the problem with this, in my mind, is that they're taking and crawling one of the last refuge. As I say, that's always been possible anyway. Oh, right. um, one of but the I earliest mean... types of search engine used to be, I don't know, um, I used to refer to it as like um, a, mm-hmm. a dog bot. <laughs> Basically, you tell it the type of data you want it to find, and it goes nuts. And it will come back, you know, a couple of hours later going, oh, I found this. That's <laughs> why it's called a dog, because it's like a tracker dog. Right. You send it out, and it goes and looks for what you're wanting. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was one of the earliest types of search engine. So yeah, I can only imagine they're a lot more efficient now. Um, yeah, I mean, and they look it, everywhere. They don't stick to the public web pages, right? I mean, no. If estimates are right, then ninety percent of what actually happens on the dark web is not anything happening for nefarious purposes. No. Believe it or not. It's a, a journalists. Huge part of the dark net is just chat rooms, basically. Right, and it's also journalists talking to sources. It's it's people talking to human rights groups that have no basic, you know, freedom anywhere else. You know, it, it's stuff that would be very boring to most people. Very boring. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is that. Some of it's scientific research. It's it's stuff that would make you rip your own head off. You'd yes. be very bored looking at most of it. And a lot of it's encrypted, so, mm. yeah. Well, if, yeah. I- encryption is just nice because it gives you a little more time. Yes. Um, it's not that it can't ever be correct. It's just, it, it's just another way to give yourself some time. Um, well, yeah, I mean, yeah. 
well, I've said this before. Yeah, I mean they've got the, the, some of the some of the data crunching computers they use at Los Alamos. If uh -huh. they want to break your encryption, they'll stick it in one of those machines, and a week later, they'll yeah. be reading whatever it is you thought you were hiding. Because these machines are. They are not listed publicly on these lists of most powerful computers, uh, but they're sitting there in a big lab, <laughs> and they're huge. Mm -hmm. You know, you're talking about um, computers that have several hundred thousand processors linked together. Right. Well, the problem isn't that DARPA has found a way to crack the dark web and crawl it and search it. I don't have a problem with that, but what I do have a problem with in a big way is non-traditional investigative techniques for crime. Most of these things are supposed to be hard. The reason they're supposed to be hard is because they are so invasive and they strip away a person's basic liberty. Um, what DARPA is doing with Memex could strip away your basic liberty. Just like that. I have a problem with that. I really do. I think people need to be aware that Memex is out there and its capabilities are beyond anything we're just beginning to hear about now. Put it that way. So, um, yeah, just things to be aware of. Always, always use cryptography <laughs> if you're communicating on the web. Um, the safest way you can communicate with anyone is face-to-face -face anymore, really. Yeah. Well, it was said in, yeah, in Citizen 4, yeah, if you, if you want to keep something secret, you need to go and meet in the basement somewhere. You do. Yeah. You, you absolutely do. And I mean, that's that's the way things were done in the past. And I, I've got to tell you, I actually don't think that's a bad thing. Human to human face to face contact. If you're telling somebody something or someone wants to tell you something that's really important, you can get a better read of a person if you can see them. There's that's always a good thing. Yeah. OK. This is a good one. Official reports on the damage caused by Edward Snowden's leaks are totally redacted. <laughs> Nearly two years after NSA contractor Edward Snowden leaked thousands of pages of documents about highly classified government surveillance programs to journalists, intelligence officials continue to claim that his disclosures have caused grave damage to national security. It has had a material impact on our ability to generate insight as to what terrorist groups around the world are doing, NSA Director Michael Rogers said of Snowden's leaks at a conference Monday. Anyone who thinks this has not had an impact doesn't know what they are talking about. But neither Rogers nor any other U.S. government official has supported their catastrophic assessments with specific details about the damage Snowden allegedly caused. They say doing so would, would erode relations between the U.S. and its allies and reveal details about the U.S. government's intelligence collection activities, which remain classified. In response to a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit, the Defense Intelligence Agency, DIA, 
recently released to Vice News more than 100 pages of internal reports prepared by a task force made up of two dozen DIA analysts that examined the alleged damage to national security resulting from Snowden's leaks. But with the exception of some subheadings, the DIA redacted every page of its internal assessments. The subheadings included assessments, talking points, compromised information, backgrounds, and recommendations. That was all you could read on those fucking things. I'm not kidding. The reports drafted between September 2013 and April 2014 were used by the leadership of the DOD to mitigate the harm caused to national security, according to a declaration signed by the head of DIA's FOI office, Alicia Williams. The task force is evaluating how the disclosure of certain classified information exposes intelligence community sources and methods, Williams said, noting that if the agency were forced to disclose any of the substantive information contained in the 112 documents that make up the reports, the results would be disastrous. She added that the task force reports are, quote, compartmentalized and only accessible to task force members who must sign a non-disclosure agreement and agree to additional security in order to access the records for mission purposes. Williams' declaration was filed in the U.S. District Court in Washington, D.C., where the government is arguing that Vice News' FOIA lawsuit seeking documents related to the Snowden damage should be dismissed. The DIA, which provides military intelligence to the DOD, summarized the task force work in a 39-page report dated December 18, 2013, entitled DOD Information Review Task Force 2 Initial Assessment Impacts resulting from a compromise of classified material by a former NSA contractor. Um, The reporter says, I obtained a copy of the heavily redacted report last year, which concluded that the scope of compromised knowledge related to U.S. intelligence capabilities is staggering. But explicit details about the alleged damage caused by Snowden, identified in the 39-page report as grave, were omitted from that document as well. In fact, the existence of the DIA's report had been unknown until the White House secretly authorized the declassification of select portions of it, so two Republican lawmakers could undercut the media narrative painting Snowden as a heroic whistleblower. This report confirms my greatest fears. Snowden's acts of portrayal place American military men and women at greater risk. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Rogers, who shares the same name as the current NSA director, said in a statement on January 2014, Stone's actions are likely to have lethal consequences for our troops in the field. Rogers did not provide evidence for his claims, but the message was clear. The Obama administration has authorized leaks of its own internal reports about Snowden for political purposes, but any attempts by journalists to dig deeper would constitute a national security threat. Gene Barlow, a spokesperson for the National Counterintelligence and Security Center, told Vice News that, quote, any open discussion of specific damages could further compromise classified information, operations, and various sources and methods involved in intelligence activities. It's just bullshit. (laughs) Um, Okay, so there's 859 pages. It's got 109 documents, and it released 39 pages, and it basically left the words A and and the intact. (laughs) So it makes for scintillating reading. I think that's hysterical. Basically, Basically, it comes down to 
they're embarrassed, they're trying to cover up, <laughs> they're leaking information to try and distract people. <laughs> the usual stuff governments get up to when they get caught doing naughty things. Damage limitation. That's yeah. that's what they're doing. Of course it is. But and I of still... course, they can release huge amounts of information with big redacted sections just to <laughs> get loads of the Look. conspiracy nuts' uh, attention. <laughs> it doesn't actually need, you know, it could be somebody's laundry list for the last <laughs> six months. But just yeah. redact specific bits of it and suddenly, yeah... <laughs> Suddenly, it's very interesting stuff. Yeah, um, that's what they do, <laughs> basically. Mm -hmm. Not quite that extreme, obviously, but yeah. Right. Take unimportant information, re release it with redacted sections, and yeah, mm. that distracts everybody for ages. Very, very true. But yeah. I think that's kind of hysterical. Okay. Yeah. Now, this is interesting, and I'll talk about SIM cards, the SIM heist in a minute, because that's very, very long, and it's got links to yes. 11 documents, and it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's probably going to be the last story we do, because I don't think I'm going to actually get through the whole thing. Well, yeah, when GCHQ <laughs> mess around, yeah, it's, it's a huge subject. Well, I mean... Because this, you... this wasn't just data hijacking, this was on a whole other level. Yeah, no, this is this is bad shit. And if you like your cell phone, you can keep your cell phone. But the government's <laughs> going to know anything and everything you do on it. Uh, thank you, GCHQ. Good job. Well, that, that's it. But, you know, the original <laughs> cell phones were developed by British Telecom. Oh, yeah. Sponsored by GCHQ. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I've got to yeah. say, GCHQ are very thorough at what they do. Okay, and yeah. well, say I think it's... Hundred years of practice. So yeah. I forget the name of the program, um, but it's the one we're always querying. It's it's you guys' program, but we're on it constantly because <laughs> we're not allowed to do it here, but you can do it there, and you know with the oh, five yeah, eyes. Um, oh, can't remember the name of it. Tor, uh, Tor something or other. Yeah. Tor, Tortura or something it is. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, we're constantly on it, and and NSA loves that program. Yeah, because it, it's you, complete you can, capture of everything. Yeah, you can look up anything yeah. you want. Yeah, exactly about anybody you want. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, I know that's probably more <laughs> than people wanted to know. <laughs> uh, the man who crafted the Patriot Act now supports your right to encrypt data. Isn't that lovely? Idiot. He's a fucking jackass. In the immediate aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, Michael Chedoroff, then head of the Justice Department's Criminal Division, helped craft the Patriot Act. You bastard! The law that extended the federal government's authority to conduct mass surveillance. Then he served as Secretary of Homeland Security for four years. Now he's a privacy advocate? Well, not quite. After the Snowden leaks, he continued to support NSA mass surveillance, but on encryption, Chedoroff... Now a private practice lawyer and consultant has changed his tune so drastically that he's largely at odds with the intelligence world. He says everyone should have a right to encryption. Nearly everyone he's worked for doesn't. In fact, earlier this week, NSA chief Mike Rogers came out against encryption, joining his colleagues at the FBI, Justice Department, and even President Obama, who have all said that law enforcement should have back doors or golden keys to be able to break encrypted communications when necessary. That genie is not going back in the bottle. 
Intelligence agencies say that they think it's possible to create a system in which companies like Apple or Google, which are both moving forward using encrypted messaging as standard for all users on iOS and Android, would have to decrypt text messages when served with a warrant. Cryptological experts say that's near impossible. Vulnerabilities can be exploited either by the NSA or by hackers or foreign governments. Cheddaroff told me he sides with the crypto world. Consumers should have access to strong, uncompromising encryption without back doors. Quote, I'm sympathetic to law enforcement, but nevertheless, I've come to the conclusion that requiring network managers or ISPs to retain a key that would allow them to decrypt data or moving back and forth on a particular device is not something the government should require, he said. If you require companies to manage a network to retain a key to decrypt, I guarantee you another provider will allow someone else in the world to have that key. What happens is honest people will have a key to encrypt data that's held by a third party. As we've seen in the past, that can lead to problems. Shutteroff recently released a report through the Global Commission on Internet Governance that explored what could be done to monitor the dark net. The paper does mention that many people around the world use anonymity tools such as Tor to avoid oppressive governments, but it's also heavy on the darknet criminal underground talk. To say that he's a completely evangelized since leaving the government wouldn't be accurate. And it's important to keep in mind that partially because of Cheddaroff, we live in a world in which mass surveillance and data collection are the norm. But now it seems he's willing to be frank about those issues still in law enforcement those still in law enforcement have been unwilling to budge on. He says, for instance, that listening to people's communications should be hard. It's harder to crack encryption without the key. You have to go to the person who has the device and get them to give you the key somehow, but we don't normally. In a free society, require people to organize their lives in a way that makes life easier for law enforcement, he said. When they come to your house with a warrant, we don't give them a tour. Cheddaroff says, when he was in charge of Homeland Security, the dark web was a nascent thing, and law enforcement didn't really train its eyes there. That has changed, and Tor, a tool that was, once upon a time, developed by the U.S. government, is now looked at as one of the few bastions of digital security and anonymity. Law enforcement has made strides in ta- in cracking tour, but the service is still viewed as being relatively anonymous. I think it's often the case when government develops something that the genie gets out of the bottle. In this case, maybe it's a bigger genie than you thought it was, he said. I don't know if anyone in government has said they regret developing it. As I said, there's value and freedom of speech there, but that doesn't mean you abdicate your responsibility to keep people safe by trying to keep an eye on it if that's where the crime has gone. What do you think of this guy so far? He's an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> he, um... My, 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 my theory on this is he did something really bad at some <laughs> point and now he really wants to hide that, but he can't if everybody's grabbing data everywhere. So he <laughs> wants his stuff, you know, he thinks, oh, suddenly he thinks, oh, yeah, yeah, we have the right to have stuff encrypted. Uh, so, yeah, he's, I think he's got something in his past that, uh, He's worried he's going to bite him in the ass. Because <laughs> it's hell of a turn rate. <laughs> it, it really is. I mean, that's why I thought it was really interesting to talk about. Most people don't have that massive spin round. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
Oh. I'm so, yeah, just I, not. I, yeah, I think I think he did something in his youth that uh, he he is now regretting, and realizes, no. oh, if there's no secrecy, <laughs> I'm screwed. Can find this shit out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe. That that's what normally happens with these sort of people. <laughs> you normally find the stuff they've been advocating for years is the very stuff they've been ignoring. So, yeah. Um, so it's like the Jimmy Savile thing. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and the the classic of all the all these uh, preachers who go on about how how pure you've got to live your life, and it turns out they're taking drugs and sleeping with prostitutes. <laughs> Same sort of thing, and I reckon he's one of those sort. <laughs> He's done something. <laughs> a lot of people in power seem to be that sort. Yes. Yeah. It's very disconcerting. Okay. I think this piece was written by Jeremy Scahill, the great sim heist. How spies stole the keys to the encryption castle. I'm sure people want to bang their heads on the floor after listening to this. American and British spies hacked into the internal computer network of the largest manufacturer of SIM cards in the world, stealing encryption keys used to protect the privacy of cell phone communications across the globe, according to top secret documents provided to The Intercept by National Security Agency whistleblower Edward Snowden. The hack was perpetuated by a joint unit consisting of operatives from the NSA and its British counterpart, the Government Communications Headquarters, or GCHQ. The breach, detailed in a secret 2010 GCHQ document, gave the surveillance agencies the potential to secretly monitor a large portion of the world's cellular communications, including both voice and data. The company targeted by the intelligence agencies, Gemalto, is a multinational firm incorporated in the Netherlands that makes the chips used in mobile phones and next-generation credit cards. Among its clients are AT&T, Mobile, AT&T, T-Mobile, Verizon, Sprint, and some 450 wireless network providers around the world. The company operates in 85 countries and has more than 40 manufacturing facilities. One of its three global headquarters is in Austin, Texas, and it has a large factory in Pennsylvania. In all, Jamalto produces some 2 billion SIM cards per year. Its motto is security to be free. With these stolen encryption keys, intelligence agencies can monitor mobile communications without seeking or receiving approval from telecom companies and foreign governments. Processing the keys also sidesteps the need to get a warrant or wiretap while leaving no trace on the wireless provider's network that the communications were intercepted. Bulk key theft additionally enables the intelligence agencies to unlock any previously encrypted communications they had already intercepted, but did not yet have the ability to decrypt. As part of the covert operations against Malto, spies from GCHQ with support from the NSA mined the private communications of unwitting engineers and other company employees in multiple countries. Jamalto was totally oblivious to the penetration of its systems and the spying on its employees. Quote, I'm disturbed, quite concerned that this has happened, Paul Beverly, a Jamalto executive vice president, told The Intercept. The most important thing for me is to understand exactly how this was done so we can take every measure to ensure it doesn't happen again and also to make sure there's no impact on the telecom operators that we have served in a very trusted manner for many years. 
What I want to understand is what sort of ramification it has or could have on any of our customers. He added that the most important thing for us now is to understand the degree of the breach. Leading privacy advocates and security experts say that the theft of encryption keys from major wireless network providers is tantamount to a thief obtaining a master ring of building super master ring of a building superintendent who holds the keys to every apartment. Once you have the keys, decrypting traffic is trivial, says Christopher Segoyan, the principal technologist for the ACLU. It's funny how I can pronounce that name because we've talked about him plenty of times. The news of this key theft will send a shockwave through the security community. The massive key theft is bad news for phone security. Really bad news. Beverly said that after being contacted by The Intercept, Jamalto's internal security team began on Wednesday to investigate how their system was penetrated and could find no trace of the hacks. When asked if the NSA or GCHQ had ever requested access to Jamalto-manufactured encryption keys, Beverly said, I am totally unaware. To the best of my knowledge, no. According to one secret GCHQ slide, the British intelligence agency penetrated Jamalto's internal networks, planting malware on several computers, giving GCHQ secret access. We believe we have their entire network, the slide's author boasted, about the operation against Jamalto. Additionally, the spy agency targeted unnamed cellular companies' core networks, giving it access to sales staff machines for customer information and network engineers' machines for network maps. GCHQ also claimed the ability to manipulate the billing servers of cell companies to suppress charges in an effort to conceal the spy agency's secret actions against an individual's phone. Most significantly, GCHQ also penetrated authentication servers, allowing it to decrypt data and voice communications between a targeted individual's phone and his or her telecom's provider network. A note accompanying the slide asserted that the spy agency was, quote, very happy with the data so far and was working through the vast quantity of product. The Mobile Handset Exploitation Team whose existence has never before been disclosed, was formed in April 2010 to target vulnerabilities in cell phones. One of its main missions was to covertly penetrate computer networks of corporations that manufacture SIM cards, as well as those of wireless network providers. The team included operators, operatives from both GCHQ and the NSA. While the FBI and other U.S. agencies can obtain court orders compelling U.S.-based telecom companies to allow them to wiretap or intercept the communications of their customers, on the international front, this type of data collection is much more challenging. Unless a foreign telecom or foreign government agency grants access to their citizens' data to a U.S. intelligence agency, the NSA or CIA would have to hack the network or specifically target the user's device for a more risky, active form of surveillance that could be detected by sophisticated targets. Moreover, foreign intelligence agencies would not allow U.S. or U.K. spy agencies to access the mobile communications of their heads of state or other government officials. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable, said George Shaw, a member of the Dutch Parliament, when told of the spy agency's actions. Shaw the intelligence spokesperson for D66, the largest opposition party in the Netherlands, told The Intercept, 
we don't want to have the secret services from other countries doing things like this. Zhao added that he and other lawmakers will ask the Dutch government to provide an official explanation and to clarify whether the country's intelligence services were aware of the targeting Jamalto, whose official headquarters are in Amsterdam. Last November, the Dutch government proposed an amendment to its constitution to include explicit protection for the privacy of digital communications, including those on mobile devices. We have in the Netherlands a law on the activities of secret services, and hacking is not allowed, Chow said. Under Dutch law, the interior minister would have to sign off on such operations by foreign governments, intelligence agencies. I don't believe he has given his permission for these kind of actions. Okay, so very you grew up with GCHQ. Does that bother them? No. <laughs> okay, of course not. If they want to and, do something, they do it. They don't care exactly. whether it's legal in the country they're going to or not. It's illegal here, but it still doesn't stop them doing it. <laughs> oh, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, the U.S. and British intelligence agencies pulled off the encryption key heist in great stealth, giving them the ability to intercept and decrypt communications without alerting the wireless network provider, the foreign government, or the individual user they have been targeted. Gaining access to a database of keys is pretty much game over for cellular encryption, says Matthew Green, a cryptography specialist for the Johns Hopkins Information Security Institute. The massive key theft is bad news for phone security. As consumers began to adopt cellular phones en masse in the mid-1990s, there were no effective privacy privacy protections in place. Anyone could buy a cheap device from Radio Shack capable of intercepting calls placed on mobile phones. The shift from analog to digital networks introduced basic encryption technology, though it was still crackable by tech-savvy computer science graduate students, as well as the FBI and some other law enforcement agencies using readily available equipment. Today, second-generation 2G phone technology which relies on a deeply flawed encryption system, remains the dominant platform globally, though U.S. and European cell phone companies now use the 3G, 4G, and LTE technology in urban areas. These include more secure, though not invincible, methods of encryption. And wireless carriers throughout the world are upgrading their networks to use these newer technologies. It is in the context of such growing technical challenges to data collection that intelligence agencies such as the NSA have become interested in acquiring cellular encryption keys. <sighs> yeah. With old-fashioned 2G, there are other ways to work around cell phone security without these keys, says Green, the John Hopkins cryptographer. With newer 3G, 4G, and LTE protocols, however, the algorithms aren't as vulnerable, so getting those keys would be essential. Um, God, this is long. Uh, SIM card personalization companies like Jamalto ship hundreds of thousands of SIM cards at a time to mobile phone operators across the world. International shipping records obtained by The Intercept show that in 2011, Jamalto shipped 450,000 smart cards from its plant in Mexico to Germany's Deutsche Telekom in just one shipment. In order for the cards to work and for the phone's communications to be secure, Jamalto also needs to provide the mobile company with a file containing the encryption keys for each of the new SIM cards. 
these master key files could be shipped via FedEx, DHL, UPS, or another snail mail provider. More commonly, they could be sent via email or through an FTP, a method of sending files over the internet. The moment a master key is generated by Jamalto or another personalization company, but before it is sent to the wireless carrier, is the most vulnerable point, vulnerable moment for interception. The value in getting them at the point of manufacture is you can assume, you can assume presumably get a lot of keys in one go since SIM chips get made in big batches, says Green, the cryptographer. SIM cards get made for a lot of different. SIM cards get made for a lot of different carriers in one facility. In Jamalto's case, GCHQ hit the jackpot. As the company manufactures SIMs for hundreds of wireless network providers, including all of the leading U.S. and many of the largest European companies. But obtaining the encryption keys while Jamalto still held them required finding a new way into the company's internal systems. Diagrams from a top-secret GCHQ slide revealed that intelligence agencies accessed the email and Facebook accounts of engineers and other employees of major telecom companies and SIM card manufacturers in an effort to secretly obtain information that could give them access to millions of encryption keys. They did this by utilizing NSA's X-Keyscore program, which allowed them to access private emails hosted on hosted by the SIM card and mobile company servers, as well as those of major tech companies, including Yahoo and Google. In effect, GCHQ clandestinely cyber-stalked Jamalto employees, scouring their emails in an effort to find people who may have had access to the company's core networks and Kai and Kai generating key KI key generating systems. The intelligence agency's goal was to find information that would aid in breaching Jamalto systems, making it possible to steal large quantities of encryption keys. The agency hoped to intercept the files containing the keys as they were transmitted between Jamalto and its wireless network provider customers. So, yeah. Thoughts? Well, the thought earlier that it's like, essentially they hit the jackpot. It's like, no, no, they deliberately targeted Jamalto. They did. Because, they cyber-stalked them. Because, you know, they, they knew they dealt with more companies than anybody else. Yeah, they stalked them. If it were a person doing this to a person, they'd, they'd be in jail for this. Yeah. But since it's our government, and your government, my government, probably the rest of the five well, eyes. Technically, it's not my government. Well, you know what I'm it's saying. It's GCHQ. They're not the well, government. <laughs> well, I mean, the NSA is not my government either, but no. technically. But yes. they are an arm of it. They're a protected arm of it. Well, GCHQ's kind of odd because it stemmed more as an extension of the military, uh, which is one reason why it's so um, direct in its approach, I suppose. Well, I mean, everything, everything that spies on people seems to be um, a remnant of, oh, what do they call it? It's it's a remnant of yeah, like you said, military. But it's the can't call it the gray state because that's wrong. Yeah. Um, but that that state that kind of 
has more control over stuff than the people you elect. You know what I mean? They're unelected people that you never see that aren't accountable to you that just kind of, they do what they want to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, (laughs) what's scary about GCHQ isn't the stuff they get up to. It's the fact that they quite openly advertise for like new staff. And yeah, yeah, they've been they've been uh, they've been taking in the best programmers and hackers they can find for decades. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're recruiting some of the best uh, yeah. computer graduates straight out of the likes of Oxford and Cambridge to work yeah. for them. <laughs> so yeah, breaking into some corporations' uh, computers mm-hmm. not really a big issue for them. I mean, Shadow they have unlimited up. funding, basically. And mm-hmm. can afford to have the best staff. So, yeah. Well, that's, you that's know. the way they've always done it. I think what's kind of terrifying to me is, at least with my NSA here, and they're not mine, I don't like claiming them, but, you know, they're here and, and there they are. Mm-hmm. Um, does anybody remember when those fuckwits got... Sorry, there's like a $50 billion budget yeah. for military intelligence... They get 40 of it. Okay. So they get $40 billion. But, and maybe people don't remember this, but I can remember when the NSA had set designers that worked on Star Trek, the next generation, come in and build them like a, a, a headquarters and a next generation captain's chair. And whenever it was funding time, they would have the politicians come around and ask them if they wanted to sit in the captain's chair at Central Command. Yeah. And they would let them see what that was like. And believe it or not, with our politicians who aren't the brightest people in the world, that works really well. Yeah. You know, they're like, oh, yeah, this is cool and powerful. And, and they think it's they think it's something it's not. Yes. Flattery goes a long way. Because yeah. politicians tend to have large egos, so flattering mm-hmm. them works really well in most cases. Not all it, politicians, but a hell it, of a lot of them. So if they actually, think you're, you're making a fuss over them, yeah, they'll oh miss yeah. things that you're doing. Well, yeah, but I mean, they also get a shit ton of funding from doing this kind of crap. Yeah. You know, it, it's misdirection. But yes. it's also really frightening that the people we elect are that base and that shallow and that easily manipulated. Why are we voting for these same fuckwits over and over again? You know, I, if you know this happens, I know yeah. this happens. You know, what, why are we voting for them the next time? It, it's still... Makes no sense. Well, everything in the world these days is down to the cult of personality, not about, yeah, how good somebody is at what they do, basically. It's not good. It really should come down to a person's moral character. And it doesn't. And and that's frightening. And um, you want to do something lighthearted so we don't have to leave these poor people thinking about how horrible... <laughs> Everything is? Should I read the Utah story? Yeah, go for it. Okay, let me 
Let me go grab that because I don't actually have it in my show notes. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, um, please remember this is Utah. DEA warns of stoned rabbits if Utah passes medical marijuana. Utah is considering a bill. Shut Facebook because it's making noise. Is considering a bill that would allow patients with certain debilitating conditions to be treated with edible forms of marijuana. If the bill passes, the state's wildlife may cultivate a taste for the plant, lose their fear of humans, and basically be high all the time. That's according to testimony presented at a Utah Senate panel, timestamp 58 minutes, last week by an agent of the Drug Enforcement Administration. Ideal in facts, ideal in science, said Special Agent Matt Fairbanks, who has been working in the state for a decade. He is a member of the marijuana eradication team in Utah. Some of his colleagues in Georgia recently achieved notoriety by raiding a retiree's garden and seizing a number of okra plants. Fairbanks spoke of his time eliminating backcountry marijuana grows in the Utah mountains. Specifically, the environmental costs associated with large-scale weed cultivation on public land. Personally, I have seen entire mountainsides subject to pesticides, harmful chemicals, deforestation, and erosion, he said. The ramifications to the flora, the animal life, contaminated water, etc. are still unknown. Fairbanks said that at some illegal marijuana grow sites, he saw rabbits that had cultivated a taste for marijuana. He continued, one of them refused to leave us. We took all the marijuana around him, but his natural instincts to run were somehow gone. It's true that illegal pot farming can have harmful environmental consequences. Of course, nothing about these consequences is unique to marijuana. If corn were outlawed and cartels started growing it in national forests, the per plant environmental toll would be about the same. But backcountry marijuana grows are a direct result of marijuana's illegal status. If you're concerned about the environmental impact of these grows, an alternative is to legalize it and regulate the plant so that people can grow it on farms and in their gardens rather than on remote mountainsides. Now, regarding rabbits, some wild animals apparently do develop a taste for a bud. And yes, it's best to keep it away from your pets. But I don't know that the occasional high rabbit constitutes grounds for keeping marijuana prohibition in place any more than drunk squirrels are an argument for outlying alcohol. And let's not even get started on the nationwide epidemic of catnip abuse. There was a time not too long ago when drug warriors terrified a nation with images of the devil's weed and reefer madness. Now it seems that the enforcers of marijuana law conjure up a stoned bunny. Not scary enough. For the Utah Senate, it seems the panel approved the bill and sent it to the full Senate where it will be debated this week. You know, it just makes me sad. No one's thinking of the bunnies. They're probably very happy with their weed. I mean, <laughs> of course they are. Shit, of course they are. To take the weed away, you're going to have like rabbits that turn into like the, the, the monster from Monty Python and the whole Monty realm. Python, I was just thinking about that. <laughs> Crazy rabbit attacking people. You're taking my drugs, man. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah. So, and I, I know you had a story too. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. this is funny. <clears throat> Hang on, I'll just bring it up so I can read it. 
I'll put the link in chat as well because it really is a good one. Hang on. Nine reasons vapors are a threat to the fabric of society. Oh, I'm being told to speak up. Right. We're bombarded daily with stories about vapors. They're an oppressed minority, that their habit harms no one but themselves, and that we should all be grateful for their extended lifespans. But is this the whole truth? We've investigated and found nine reasons why we all might want to treat vapors with suspicion. One. Their habit is antisocial. You mainly see them hanging around at night, and there's little more, concert, little more concerting than a vapor looming out of the dark at you. Many establishments rightly tell them to limit what they do to outside. We should all be able to enjoy a night out without the threat of vapors hanging over us. 2. They're pedantic. Vapors are fond of arguing online, but we've known for many years that they are incorrigible pedants. In fact, an old Chinese legend says that if you want to confuse a vapor, you should spill a sack of rice in front of them, and they will be unable to move until they have counted each and every grain. Worth bearing in mind. 3. Their breath smells bad. The exhalation from that opening was fetid beyond description. A smell of carnal pits. That's from Stephen King, Salem's <laughs> Lot. 4. They are often sex pests. <laughs> Which of the audience is that? No, hang on. <laughs> In the village of Kring, near Tinjan, in what is now Croatia, there are reports of a local vapour called Eurogrando in 1672. <laughs> he spent most of his time trying to sexually harass his widow until, in the end, the villagers were forced to behead him. 5. They, they are terrible lovers. According to Aztec <laughs> mythology, if you have sex with a female vapour, <laughs> oh or Chicoteo, as they, they called them, you go completely mad. Six, you can't see them in mirrors. If anything should clue us into the fact there's something not quite right about the vapours, it's the fact you can't see them in mirrors. How are they doing their hair? Sheeple, think about it. Seven, they can turn into bats. One victim of a vapour, Mina Harker, was terrorised in her bed by a vapour who turned into a bat and flew through a window. Vapours need to understand that it's not acceptable in this day and age to force your way into someone's boudoir in the guise of a pipistrol in order to drain them of their blood. <laughs> Eight. I think... Oh, yeah, go ahead. I think they have us confused with something else, I'm just going to say. Could be, could be, Eight. yes. Yeah. Eight. Their heads detach from their bodies as they search for prey. In Japan, they call vapors nukakubi, and they tell of how their heads and necks detach from their bodies as they roam around towns and cities in the night, searching for human prey. Surely even the vapors' staunchest defenders can't justify this sort of behaviour. 9. Their bodies don't decay. Some people think it's the fact that they are avoiding the skin-aging effects of tobacco smoke, but we're we can be pretty sure it's the fact that they spend much of their time nocturnally drinking the life essence of virgins that gives the vapours their healthy young complexion. 
So, um, next time a vapor tells you their habit is harmless, drive a hawthorn stake through their heart, stuff their <laughs> mouths with garlic, cut off their heads and bury them in a moving body of water. It's the only way to be safe. You know, it. <laughs> uh, the people that don't like us and the people that don't like smokers do have that quasi-religious hatred. Yes. So, there you go. Well, it should be noted, the journalist who wrote this article is Vapor. <laughs> Funnily enough, he might just be having a bit of a dig, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. Yes. I uh, funnily enough, most Vapors found it hilariously funny over here, but we did have a few that didn't get the joke, which uh, is a sad indictment of modern culture. Well, I think a lot of people might not have be so um, well read. Uh, the part that the part the Mina that Harker she, bit. I yeah, mean, Mina. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. How do you not know who Mina is? Yeah. Even if you haven't read the book, yeah. I'm There's assuming so you've films. seen yeah. one of the 800 versions of fucking Dracula out there. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good that, that he did the uh, other countries' uh, vampire myths as well. That that was a nice touch. That was funny. And yeah, if people go to the article, yes, some of the captions on the pictures are hilarious as well. <laughs> well, you know, um, I figured we should end this on a lighthearted note because Janie wasn't in here making cracks and having ooh shiny moments. But uh, well, I did put a link in chat earlier for some swearing action if people are missing <laughs> that. Uh. Isn't there, there's like a, a video of like all the sweary moments from one of the sweariest characters on TV. Yeah, that's that's one of the ones I linked to, yes. Malcolm yeah, Tucker. We, mm -hmm. we, we probably should have just played some of that so people would feel at home. Well, I can if you want. Okay. Hmm. Oh. Yeah. Uh, neither of you would be terribly offended by that. I'm going to have to mop up a fucking hurricane of piss here from all of these neurotics. <laughs> have I got my bollocking face on? What? No. This is my bollocking face. Ooh, crikey. It's got going here. I've got a to-do list here that's longer than a fucking Leonard Cohen song. I'll be with you in two <laughs> shakes of a kind, baby. I've got more on my plate than a spinster at a wedding. That wasn't a reference to your daughter, by the way, Andrew. Doug Hayes is a massive abortion. Again, not a reference to your daughter. If she says no, well, I don't know. The only other candidate is my left bollock with a fucking smiley face drawn on it. No, I'm for NOMFP. Not my fucking problem. I quite like that. Do you like that? That's I think I'll use that quite a lot today. I'll use it as well. Well, fuck a pot noodle. Yeah. Are you joking? <laughs> Are you joking now? At times of stress, I make jokes. I have written some very nice things about you. Big fat egg of solid fuck. He's so dense that <laughs> light bends around him. And a face like dark cotton licking piss off a nettle. Some very nice fucking things indeed. I had a lump in my throat. Didn't fucking come in your mouth. 
That is not fucking funny, you retard. Fucking shocking, shitty, charlatan, shit. That's good. Feel off the furniture, you old bitch twat. You want a punt now. That's a joke, by the way. Not a very nice one, a nasty one, which masks a lot of very negative feelings about this fucking bit one. Not only have you got a fucking bent husband and a fucking daughter that gets taken to school in a fucking tedentia, you're also fucking mental. I used to be the fucking feral, Terry. I used to be the fucking feral. I am unfuckable. I have never been fucked. And if you fucking try and fuck me, you'll fight my fucking axe fucking go fucking slap you fucking You won't hear any more swag from us. You Massive gay shit! Fuck off! Where the fuck is he? In the goldfish bowl. For fuck's sake! You will see me again! You've got absolutely no fucking idea what I'm talking about, do you? You know, it's just not the same without Jeannie's voice. <laughs> you know, there was plenty of fucks in there, it's just not the same without Jeannie's voice. Yeah, that, that's one of the shorter videos. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, but in Jeannie's words, my God, Doctor Who swears worse than me. <laughs> he actually does. So all unscripted as well. They were all off the cuff, because uh, the show, in the thick of it, it had a script, but it was mostly um, improvised by the cast. So Peter Capaldi, all those swearing rants he came out with, he came up with on the spot. And this is why they employed a Scotsman to be the. <laughs> the writer of the show's Scottish as well. So yeah. explain some things. Yeah. Well, I guess that's it for this evening. Advert. Okay. Advert. Why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round, so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices, fast. Amoseek.com. Good night, guys. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next Monday.